I'm not sure if you've come to fully realize this in your life yet, but I'm guessing most of you have, that oftentimes our expectations about something, an event, an object in this life, oftentimes just simply do not measure up to reality. This is maybe one of the more common ones. If you've ever seen a commercial for a food item or you've gone to a restaurant that have pictures on the menu and you go, oh, that looks good, looks tasty, I'm going to order that. The server brings the food to you and goes, what's this? I didn't order this. But yes, you did because that's what we serve. It's nothing like what you imagined or, or what was advertised. We're finding different variations of this too, and I think the pandemic has probably brought this one on as is the expectation for many of us who now work at home, we're thinking that's such a great, fantastic thing. I don't have to commute to and from work. I can save time. I can save money. And there is that upside to that. But there's also a real downside is that if you work from home, sometimes it feels like you're never done working. And that's not so good. The human body wasn't created to constantly be going at it, and yet sometimes that's what happens. Here's maybe the most prominent uh, example of expectations versus reality. And you've probably experienced this now too more as a result of the pandemic, the online shopping. Uh, and I don't know if this has happened to you, but you look at the pictures, you read the reviews, and you have this great image in your mind of receiving this item that you order, and then it shows up and it is absolutely nothing. Nothing like what you were expecting. I know that happened to me just a little bit uh, uh, a while back, I had ordered that little olive oil lamp. Uh, it wasn't little in the picture, and I didn't expect it to be so small, but then when it came and I used it as a prop here, I, it was just teeny tiny, and I, I was kind of kicking myself that I didn't make sure it was a little bit larger. So, so that happens, where the reality of something just doesn't measure up to our hopes or expectations. But what if, just once in a while, the reality superseded the expectations. It was greater than. It, it, it blows us away with just how neat something is. What if it was more like this? At Amazon, we're dedicated to delivering your products as quickly as possible. And today, we're thrilled to introduce our latest service, Yesterday Shipping. It's easy. Click checkout, choose Yesterday Shipping, and when you confirm your order, you'll already have had the product for a day. Sounds simple, right? Well, it gets even simpler. The day before you order, you'll get a package that you're not expecting. On the box, there will be a note telling you to call the Amazon support team. Hi, I just got a pair of shoes that I didn't order. Yes, you ordered those shoes tomorrow with Amazon Yesterday Shipping. And with Yesterday Shipping, returns are even more straightforward. Mm, actually, these are a size too small. No problem, I'll send you a larger size with Amazon Yesterday Shipping. Okay, they're sent. They should have arrived yesterday. Yeah, I know. I've been wearing them and they fit perfectly, so why did you send another pair that don't fit? No, 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 sir. Your reality just changed. When we started the call, you were wearing your old shoes. We went over all of this yesterday. Hi, I just got a pair of shoes that I didn't order. Yes, two days from now, you order a pair of shoes with yesterday shipping. But the first pair... Oh, yeah, I heard about this. Hey, could I send myself with yesterday shipping and meet myself? Uh, sir, please don't do that. Are, are you me? Yes, give me your phone. Why? Why were you in a box? Hi, uh, I just delivered myself to myself. Am I dead right now? I warned you not to. I can hear yourself freaking out. Listen to me. I slash he will be fine. What is that? But me, he could use a pair of these shoes. What's happening? Amazon yesterday shipping. What are you? Simple. What are you? Blowing, but the strangest thing of all of that, the part that isn't real, there's no phone number to call for Amazon. Trust me, I've tried. A lot of times you'll get something, oh, or I'll screw up on a shipping thing. I want to talk to a live person. 
and you can't do it. You have to email them or you fill out some survey. There's no way to actually talk to somebody after you've made these orders. That's how I know this could never be real. Forget the time thing. It's just not going to work. There happens to be actually something that did exceed all of our expectations, and we had the opportunity to celebrate it again last week, the resurrection. Can you imagine what it was like for those people who expected little to nothing out of that Sunday morning? In fact, many of them thought, oh, we better go finish the burial process, and a bunch of them were hiding. What a mind blow it must have been when they show up and the stone is rolled away and the angels are there to deliver the message, Jesus isn't dead, he's alive. Easter exceeds all human expectations and it guarantees to us that one day our own physical bodies will be resurrected back to life, something that we fully anticipate and expect but can only fully appreciate it when that moment happens. But what came next? And I know Scripture records how a lot of the disciples still wouldn't believe it. A lot of them, though, were still afraid. But since we've been celebrating the resurrection for over 2,000 years, it's a valid question for us to ask, what now? Should we just sit around and wait for Judgment Day? Should we maybe follow the practices of some of those early Christians and go into hiding for fear that our Christian faith might make us targets? Should we just hunker down and hope to survive, or does God have something more in store for us? Does God answer that question, what comes after Easter? Well, the good news is, is he does, and that's the introduction to uh, this new sermon series that we're beginning today, and we've never done anything quite like this. Um, but that shouldn't throw you for a loop because we like to try new things. We're actually going to have the single longest sermon series that we've ever tackled here at Abiding Shepherd, including today. It is 33 separate lessons on the topic of sanctification. And you might think, wow, that's a long, long series, and that looks like it's going to be a lot of work, but it's not. See, I have the expectation that because I wrote a newsletter article talking about this sermon series, you all know about this already, right? I've been around long enough to know that the reality is is that's probably not true. You all live busy lives. We don't read the way uh, we used to. And so let me just take a few moments to get you prepped on what we're going to study. A lot of people have been asking for sure, but the reality is is there's a doctrine within Scripture that a lot of people either avoid or are very, very confused about. It happens to be this doctrine of sanctification. And it is the answer to the what now. If Easter genuinely changes our lives, not only someday in the future when we're raised back to glory and soul and body united, but it changes our lives right now, we have to wrestle with that question, what does God want us to do from this point forward until the day of his return? God very precisely gives us those answers. And I'll be honest with you, even as we work through all of these lessons, we will barely scratch the surface of sanctification. But it's important that we understand it, and it's one of those doctrines that we shouldn't avoid because God offers us so much insight into our Christian relationship both with him and each other that is worthy of our time, and it also helps us to understand better what God is doing as he allows certain events to happen and certain events that he steers us away from. And so together we're going to roll up our sleeves and go through this long list. And if you want to do some preparatory work, just email me. I'll send this list to you. 
Or the other thing you can do is be vigilant. Every Saturday we send out the teaser announcing the text and the themes at both of our locations. And if you like, you can always read that text ahead of time and start mulling over some of the things that we might be studying and tackling together here as we worship. It's important for you to understand how this actually begins with this lesson. And any number of lessons could have been chosen as the starting point for a study in sanctification, but this one seems very much appropriate. And you'll understand that once we talk more about Paul and the Thessalonians. But first let me share with you these seven verses where Paul writes, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. First, let me share some background, then we'll introduce sanctification in a much larger way, and then we'll work this through together. One of the reasons why this is such an appropriate starting point for the study in sanctification is because of Paul's work in the city of Thessalonica. And it's very easy for us to get our heads around that because it is pretty much uh, encapsulated in the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 17. So as further review, if you'd like to go in your home devotions this week, just read through those 10 verses and you'll quickly recognize why this works out so well as a kickoff for sanctification. Just to fill you in, I want to inform you that this was a special relationship that Paul had, but it was very limited. He had been over in the area of Asia, and God had basically called Paul and his fellow missionaries, Silas and Timothy, to cross over the Aegean Sea over into the area of Macedonia, which today would be modern-day Turkey. And the reason that they had to go there is because there were many people who had not yet heard about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So as they cross over, they work through Philippi, they come to the city of Thessalonica, and Paul had kind of a protocol when he arrived in a new city. On the Sabbath day, Saturday, he'd go to the local Jewish synagogue, and there he would begin to teach them that Jesus is Messiah, and the proof of that was his physical resurrection from the dead. Paul had the opportunity to do that for three consecutive Saturdays in the city of Thessalonica. And one of the beautiful things about this even very short story is that the Holy Spirit powerfully worked in many people's lives. There were a good number of converts from their former way of life <clears throat> into the Christian faith. The downside is, is that many non-Christian Jews became very jealous and upset with the Apostle Paul, and so they were persecuting Paul and the other missionaries and ultimately started a riot in the city of Thessalonica. It got so bad that Paul basically had to escape from there under the cover of darkness. Now, what that sets up is the fact that with only a limited amount of time and while giving thanks to God for changing people's lives and eternities, these people were left with a lot of questions. So the Holy Spirit led Paul not only to write this letter, from which our lesson comes, but also a secondary letter, which helps to answer many of those questions. And it should be no surprise to us that a lot of those questions center on sanctification. The Thessalonians were also asking that question, well, now what? What should we do? We've been blessed with this faith. Of course, we want to honor God. How are we supposed to now live our lives as Christians in a very sinful and hostile world? 
This is where I'd like to, if you will, in a much more general way, introduce to you this topic of sanctification, which will be the emphasis of our study. I had actually uh, chosen to introduce this differently to tell you that the man who authors this video is a retired professor from our Bethany College and seminary, and by the way, happens to be the very brother of one of our members, Ruth Ann Mickelson, and wouldn't you know what the Lord would do? He's actually here today. So, it's a pretty rare occasion where we get to use one of these videos and the actual uh, people in those videos uh, grace us with their presence. But if you've got any more questions about sanctification, I'm going to tell you to go talk to uh, Professor Custer because he'll answer them all. Actually, what he does, it's a, it's a good catechetical review of the work of the Holy Spirit and helps us to get our minds in the right place as we begin this study on this doctrine of Scripture. Tonight we speak of God the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, whose work for us is summarized in the third article of the Apostles' Creed. This diagram tries to visualize those teachings. We spoke last time about the perfection of the original creation with man and woman being made in the image of God, but they sinned. And sin condemned all humankind to the punishment of death. That is where each of us is born. That is where we enter the world, already condemned to death because of the sin we inherit and further doomed by the sins we actually commit. But God in his love would not leave us there. He sent his son Jesus Christ to rescue us. And Jesus did that by coming down from his heavenly throne to become fully human and to live under God's law, which we have broken, but which he obeyed perfectly. He then suffered death on the cross, not for his own sins, for he had none, but bearing our sin and punishment of death for us. God the Father accepted the work of his Son on our behalf. God forgives all our sins for Jesus' sake, and he looks upon us as fully righteous and sinless for Jesus' sake. When we believe this, we are living on two of the lines in this diagram. In God's eyes, we are completely justified by the work of Jesus, elevated again to the perfection that Jesus bestowed upon us, and we're destined for the perfection of heaven in the next world. That is certain, and always our greatest comfort. But meanwhile, we also live down here, struggling with our old self that wants to keep sinning. We are, as the saying in Latin goes, simul justus et peccator, that is, at the same time righteous and sinner. As we continue to struggle with the forces of evil in our lives, God does not leave us without help. He sends the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who comes to us through what we call the means of grace, that is, the means by which God brings his grace and love to us. The Holy Spirit who appeared in scripture in the form of a dove, comes to us through the word of the gospel in scripture and through the sacraments of baptism on the right and the Lord's Supper there on the left. By these means, the Holy Spirit, as Luther's explanation of the third article says, calls us by the gospel, enlightens us by his gifts, sanctifies us, that is, makes us more and more holy, and keeps us in the one true faith. 
by ourselves we can't and won't believe in Jesus our Savior. As St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, no one can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit comes to us through the means of grace and gives us the faith by which we receive the gift of forgiveness won by Jesus for us. Then, with the further help of the Spirit, we work in this life to become more and more holy, more and more fit for heaven, all the while reassured that it's not our works or struggles that fit us for heaven, but rather that upper line. Christ's work alone has already fit us for heaven. And finally, we reach the point of temporal death. And in the resurrection, we will be taken body and soul to the perfection God has prepared for us. That's when the words of Revelation chapter 21 will be fulfilled. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's the work of God the Holy Spirit, to bring us God's gospel message, to give us faith in it, by which we receive the forgiveness it promises, and to guide us to heaven. What a wonderful friend and comforter the Holy Spirit is. Thanks be to God. Now that's a general overview, not only of the third article, but also this entire study that we're going to be going through on sanctification and there's a lot in there and that's why there are so many lessons because there's a lot of details there's also a lot of things that we need to keep straight because it can be a confusing teaching of the Bible if we don't uh, keep our wits about us and if we start to if you will mix contexts and passages in places that they have no business going and so you understand in many ways that's exactly what Paul does for the Thessalonians he starts with the basics things that they were able to teach them while he was there and then he wants to expand on those things that they knew and one of the things that he certainly made clear to them was the process that we call justification and we'll talk about that in more detail next week but it's the act of God making us right and that's ultimately what saves us. It doesn't require anything on our part. Even the faith that connects us back to God is a gift given through the Holy Spirit. So at no point in this study should we ever stop and pat ourselves on the back and go, I'm doing pretty good at this whole sanctification thing. Because it doesn't come down to us. It's God working in us through his powerful word and his sacraments. Now, with this understanding that the Holy Spirit gifted the Thessalonians with faith, in many ways the resurrection is the perfect picture of what happens in our lives. There will be the physical resurrection at the end of this world, but there's also a spiritual resurrection, and that's the being born again or the new life that we're given through this gift of faith. We are spiritually dead. That's that bottom line in that video. We're raised back to life through this gift. And basically then, what Paul is telling the Thessalonians, this is your new way of life. This phrase in the original language, it talks about walking along a path. It's a way of describing how you now live your lives. Something has changed. You were headed in this direction. The Holy Spirit came. He called you to faith, and now you're headed in this direction. This part has been established. Paul has talked about this in great detail with the Thessalonians. You were saved by grace. Now what? What does that mean? How does my life change? Paul also wants to make it very clear that all of this study goes back and the credit goes to God himself. 
And he uses this phrase, in the Lord Jesus, which makes us focus on the fact that this isn't work that we do, it's work that's done in us and through us. It's a special grammatical phrase, meaning that Jesus Christ is the object or instrument through which these things happen. Without Jesus, not only are we not saved, we're not sanctified. Everything must go back to him. Now, you're going to hear this a lot. I'll remind you over and over, and hopefully you get sick of me saying it. But it's very, very important that we understand that salvation is not equal to sanctification. We're even going to talk about that in our very next lesson next week from these verses in Ephesians chapter 2. Justification is a different doctrine in Scripture than sanctification. They're connected, they must go together, but they are not to be confused with each other. Sanctification is and always will be the result of God saving us. So please, at any time, if anything sounds wrong or you might mishear something, go, did you say I have to do these things in order to be saved? Ask the question so that clarification can be made because this is one of the areas where confusion often arises. Why am I supposed to do these good things? I'm already going to heaven. And the very answer is in the question. You are already going to heaven. Therefore, we do these things in order to serve and honor God. Now, to specifically apply that to the lives of the Thessalonians and to help us in our own sanctification study, Paul says, we ask you and we urge you to do this sanctification more and more. This is probably the other area of most confusion within the topic of sanctification. The fact that while God gets all of this started, God works this work in us, at a certain point, God comes to us and says, part of the responsibility of sanctification is now yours. I have raised you back to life spiritually, which means I've empowered you and I've taken you back at least in part to what I originally created as my children. And I created powerful, perfect children with expectations of producing fruit in this life. That's why we had that gospel lesson. In a sense, we're like a tree dependent on the soil and the one who tends us, but it's the tree that does produce the fruit. And that's what God wants to see. And again, so that we don't get things out of order or misunderstand. The fact that Paul uses these words and then he says to learn to control his own body should tell us, as he's speaking to the Thessalonians, he's now introducing to them this concept of, okay, God did his work, God did his job, but now God is asking you to take part of the responsibility of actually choosing to live your faith on a daily basis. Basically meaning God did everything necessary to rescue us, but now that we've been saved, he gives us a plethora, a a banquet table full of choices as to how we might choose to say thank you and honor God with our lives. And he puts this word apexomai, this concept of control and what we have to control in a middle voice. And that's used in two ways. One is that God gets this work started as the Holy Spirit did through the gospel message, but then at a certain point, we become active in that action. The other thing is this is used reflexively, meaning God is saying, this is something you choose to do to yourself. There's a part of you that needs to be held back. There's a part of you that every day you need to control because left unchecked, it will destroy you. So what is Paul talking about? So with the Thessalonians, because of the depths of this doctrine, he wants to give them this kind of general overview. He wants to give them some guidance. 
He doesn't say, I'm going to give you this whole to-do list, but basically he breaks it down in two areas of our lives. And the first one he puts in terms of the sexual immorality. You know this word we have in our English language. It comes from the word pornaya, pornography. So you understand, he's not talking about smutty pictures, and he's not even talking about the adulterous relationship somebody in a marriage relationship might choose to have. He's talking about anything that goes against God's design for the beautiful relationship in marriage that he created already back at the beginning. Now, there is a very personal application to the Thessalonians. They lived in a very perverted sexual culture, not unlike today. And so there were certainly days when they would have to make godly choices about their married lives. But you should also understand that Scripture oftentimes uses the picture of the marriage relationship to help us understand our relationship with God. In many places, Christ is described as the bridegroom, and we, the Christian church, are described as the bride. This would be an illustration of that. We were like the damsel in distress, and our rescuer came, and he saved us because he loves us, and he wanted us back. And now as part of this relationship, what Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians and us to do is to be faithful to that husband. Because after all, he gave everything in order to rescue us. That's where these two doctrines of saving and being sanctified overlap. But again, they're not to be confused. Without the husband, we would be nothing. But since he has made us back into something, his beloved... Now we have options, we have choices, and he has given us the ability to be faithful to him in our relationship with him. That's one aspect which Paul is saying, you can work on your sanctification. The other he puts in this terms, and maybe the best way to describe it is the other amazing relationship that God designed at the beginning, the family. And in this aspect, Paul is hearkening more to the Christian family than to just general population. What he's saying is that you are to treat one another in a godly way. He uses these two words, things that we're not to do, because if we do, it feeds into what he was telling us we needed to get a hold of and control. Now, so we're clear. Paul's talking less about the actual actions and more about where those actions begin, the heart. And already with the Thessalonians and as part of our study, something we're going to go into great detail later is is that the spiritual resurrection is very much true. It's the gift of faith and we're made alive again, but there's the reality that there's still part of us that is very much dead. We use terms like the new man to describe this gift of faith and the life that God has brought to us, and we'll talk about the old Adam, the sinful nature within us. Paul's talking about the reality that right now we exist in basically two forms. We have this perfected nature which God has given us, and we have this imperfect nature which we inherited from our fathers. And these two are constantly at odds with one another. The new man wanting to serve God because of everything God has done for us, and the old Adam which still hates God and wants nothing to do with him. That's why Paul not only encourages the Thessalonians to grow in their sanctification, but he uses these two illustrations. When you stop to think about what he's done is he's offered up as guidance for our sanctified lives the two tables of the law, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And oftentimes people totally misunderstand what these tables of the law are meant to do. You can't keep the commandments enough in order to be rescued on your own. 
Only God can save us. But they do serve other purposes. And in our study, they will serve as guide markers or directional signs as we answer that question, what now? Well, live to please God. And, of course, the natural question is how? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Don't abuse his name. Make him the priority of your lives. Fellowship with God. And because you have that relationship, reflect that in your relationship with each other. Honor your parents. Don't steal. You know the list. And we'll talk about those, but the law won't become the focus of this study. It's simply to guide us how to live a life that is pleasing to God. Paul wraps all of this introduction not only to our study, but sanctification to the Thessalonians, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Sometimes the best way to make a point in this language is to use the opposite or the negative. The word that Paul uses, you know, catharsis. It's the word that deals with the heart. And he actually puts it in the opposite, a catharsis, impure. That isn't why God created us. That isn't why God called us. That isn't why God redeemed us to go on with a sinful life, a life that serves ourselves and that sinful nature. You are called out of the darkness and spiritual death in order to once again be in that relationship with God which he created to live a life that says thank you for being my father. Thank you for being my rescuer. Thank you for making me holy so that I can spend eternity with God and with each other. That's why you haven't been called to be impure, but you've been called ultimately to live a sanctified, a holy life. That's the briefest of introductions to a long study, and I pray to God it's not tedious the way it's been presented. I hope it's intriguing. Because there's a lot of work for us to do, and obviously there's going to be this question that each of us is going to have to wrestle with is is why? Why study this? You know, we've we've covered a lot of ground together. Why why now? Why sanctification? And and in the newsletter article I talk, a lot of people have been asking about this. And we don't always design sermon studies based on what you want. Oftentimes it's based more on what the present situation might call for. And if there was ever a time for a study on sanctification, now is that time. Because the why answer is so revealing. Not only do we want to honor God, but there's also a blessing which we receive, not only in understanding sanctification, but actually living sanctified lives. Let me go back to something Paul introduced, and we'll talk about in more detail. Self-control. That new man, and I don't know if it's ever been spelled out this clearly, that new man, that life of faith, is strong enough to control that old Adam. That's the reality what Scripture teaches is God has made us alive so powerfully that if we choose to do so, we can suppress that sinfulness in us. We don't have to sin. And yet many times we find ourselves choosing to do so. There's a reality that results from that in that every time we make a sinful choice, God doesn't turn around and punish us for it. After all, Jesus Christ was punished for all of our sins on the cross. Easter morning proved that he paid the price. But you and I both know there are natural consequences to a sinful choice. If I choose to drive 120 miles an hour, sooner or later, either I'm going to get a speeding ticket or I'm going to crash. 
And God's not to blame for that. I chose to do that. And so it is a blessing if I can control that sinful urge to go as fast as I want. But there's another reality that we have to deal with, and that's why this study becomes so vitally important. These two natures are at constant odds with one another. These two natures, the new man and the old Adam, are constantly playing tug-of-war. The new man wants nothing other than to praise God and show his love to each other. The old Adam wants nothing to do with that and will try to do everything possible, not only to undermine our relationship as fellow human beings, but to undermine our relationship with God. And there's no other way to say it, but there are eternal consequences to that relationship being destroyed. I don't know if I can impress on you enough the importance of this study, both from a very day-to-day perspective as well as an eternal perspective. I think together, if we really work hard, we can get a better understanding, not only of sanctification, but with this understanding, help to encourage, maybe even push one another, not to serve God because there's some great glory in it for us, but because there's great glory in it for God. And as a result of it, we get the opportunity to tell others what this God means to all of us. If you think it isn't that important, then I would simply like to remind you that, in a sense, we're practicing for heaven. And you know that old cliche, practice makes perfect. Well, God makes us perfect, but he wants us to begin practicing what life is going to be like in eternity. Try to imagine what it is like living every day without sin, without the temptation to want to go against God. Now, I know that won't be in this lifetime, But boy, isn't it intriguing to start to think and live that way. The Holy Spirit invites us with that. And on the other hand, if we practice evil, well, then evil will follow us all of our lives. There is truly an upside and blessing to every single one of us with a better understanding of sanctification. And if you don't believe me, I invite you at any time this week to get up out of your chair, go to your window, and take a look out your, out your window, and only a brief glance will tell you what you need to know. What happens when you start to choose yourself as God, when we replace the true God with humankind? with the human mind? What happens when it becomes more important to have control and power rather than to get down and serve one another in genuine love? What happens to mankind when it cares more about being popular and noticed than it cares about its fellow man and finding those who are truly lost and desperate? All you need to do is look outside right now and you see the effects of that. Long ago, this world lost the beautiful heart with which God created it. And the consequences of that It always follows that collectively this world is now losing its mind. And so that we're not swept along with that tide of that dishonor, of that inhumane way of treating one another, God simply invites us to answer that question, standing at the empty tomb, what now? I pray God blesses our study together because it is God's answer to that question. And if we're truly, genuinely interested in that answer, we will find maybe for the only time in our lives that reality will far exceed our expectations. Because as we stand there going, well, what now, God? What do you want us to do? The answer is always the same. Go. Go and live. That's what.
sin. The barrier that causes division between people and separates us from God. If humans are responsible for their actions and commit sins, why would God save them rather than expecting people to answer for themselves? God is love, the giver of life. He created humans to be spiritually and relationally connected with him. But mankind chose to act against God's will, to sin, separating us from God, the source of life. Sin was passed down from generation to generation like a virus, spreading with humanity, separating people from God and one another. God spoke through his prophets, giving new commandments and opportunities to follow his law. But the people always fail. The price of sin, of separating ourselves from God, is death. Since God is perfectly just, he couldn't simply ignore or forgive humanity's sins. God is holy and righteous. His uncompromising nature means he must judge and punish sin. So wouldn't it be up to us to earn God's forgiveness and avoid judgment? The problem is, humans can't keep God's commands. We can't live without sin. And we can't redeem ourselves. It would seem like we're doomed. Except God doesn't want his creations to die. He is merciful and loving and wants us to be restored, living with him in full life beginning with Ibrahim and continuing through other prophets over the centuries. God revealed piece by piece his plan to send the Redeemer who would pay the penalty for mankind's sin. The Redeemer is Jesus. He descended to earth from his place of glory in heaven, took on human form and lived the sinless life we never could. Then Jesus willingly took on our sins enduring the punishment of death for us once and for all. But he could not be held by death. Jesus rose from the grave, conquering death and sin, enabling us to have a restored relationship with God. God loves us. And because humans aren't capable of restoring themselves, Jesus redeemed us from sin and death so that we might be saved and live with him.